From peanut farmer to president to Nobel Peace Prize winner, Jimmy Carter is a man driven by his strong faith in God and a strong desire to succeed. But what exactly did he achieve? And what will his enduring legacy be? In this episode, we dive a bit deeper in our first presidential biography as we ask, who is Jimmy Carter? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. My first guest today is an emeritus professor of US studies at University College London and an expert on the US presidency. His most recent books are Reagan, American Icon, and FDR, Transforming the Presidency and Renewing America. Welcome to the podcast, Ewan Morgan. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. And uh, also joining us today is Daniel K. Williams, a professor of history at the University of West Georgia and the author of several books on religion and politics in the United States, including The Election of the Evangelical, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and the Presidential Contest of 1976. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you both here. And uh, I think between the three of us, well, I take no credit for this. Between the two of you, um, I'm going to learn a lot about Jimmy Carter on this episode. And um, for anyone interested in anything we discuss, I'm going to put links to both of your books and some other useful references in the show notes as well. But let's start with, I guess, the elephant in the room when it comes to Jimmy Carter, because although it's hard to imagine any president not claiming to believe in God, in Jimmy Carter's case, faith was a major driving force before, during, and after his presidency. So, Daniel, I'm, I'm keen to know how you think Jimmy Carter's faith really shaped who he was as a person. It certainly was central to his life. Uh, he wrote two books specifically on his own faith. He's, of course, written many books, but uh, two books solely devoted uh, to his faith, I think, su- would suggest that maybe this is a very central element. And I think everyone who has written about Carter or who New Carter extensively uh, has agreed that his faith is is deeply felt and genuine, even among his critics. That's never really been questioned. Um, I do want to say a little bit about the type of faith that he had and how that influenced him in life, because I think that perhaps has been a bit of a puzzle uh, for some people. I think it's important to understand Carter as uh, the product of forces in American religion that, that were present uh, in the 20th century South. Carter was born uh, into a Southern Baptist family. He's remained uh, throughout his life a Baptist and an evangelical. Uh, At the same time, though, his beliefs have put him at odds with the Southern Baptist Convention, which he would eventually leave uh, in the early 1990s. So Carter, like many Southern Baptists of his generation, uh, grew up in a home that read the Bible, uh, that went to church as a child uh, coming of age. Uh, He would have been uh, baptized after a profession of faith. And then throughout his life, he continued to make prayer uh, and daily Bible reading uh, continual habits. But his faith was not static. In 1966, for example, right after uh, his gubernatorial election loss, 
uh, to Lester Maddox when he was going through a profound faith crisis. He had a religious experience that he described as being born again. And that led to a renewed commitment that manifested itself in fervent evangelism in a couple of, of uh, evangelistic uh, campaigns uh, and with a, a renewed dependence on God. And there have been several other moments in his life where he said that he went through some profound theological rethinking. Uh, there was a moment, for example, when he began exploring uh, the writings of, of Reinhold Niebuhr uh, and more liberal Protestant theologians. And so I would describe his his faith as evangelical, but as progressive evangelical, uh, that he's not someone who has been interested in getting involved in the culture wars that have consumed a lot of other American evangelicals. Uh, instead, his faith is manifest in the ethical teachings of Jesus, uh, as well as a continued reliance on God through prayer. And I, I think a genuine pluralism that he is always in his public life and increasingly in his older years has been very interested in other people's uh, religious experiences, even outside of Christianity. And so to an earlier degree than a lot of uh, white Southern Baptists of his generation, he was very interested in crossing racial lines, uh, in promoting civil rights for African-Americans, and then throughout his presidency and, and beyond, uh, he's been interested in trying to make sure that that the emphasis on faith doesn't exclude those who are not Christian. Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out, as you did, that Jimmy Carter really channeled his faith to try and deliver a really positive agenda, um, both during and outside his presidency, because I feel like evangelicalism gets really badly distorted nowadays with sort of the far right of the Republican Party. They're even a lot of more central Republicans don't want to associate themselves with. And kind of on that note, Ewan, I wonder if you could explain a bit about how Jimmy Carter was able to balance his faith with his political career. You know, was it sort of used as a strength or, or, or do you think it was a bit of an impediment to him as a politician? Well, he was certainly, in my opinion, the most pietistic president of the 20th century. But... Uh, this was really a source of suspicion for uh, liberal Democrats uh, from the North at this time who were pretty um, secular. And uh, it would also cause problems for him with his uh, uh, own apparent base, um, uh, the evangelicals. Uh, for the evangelicals, Carter as president was uh, on the wrong side of many of the issues they cared most about, uh, ERA, abortion, and particularly uh, the tax-free status of uh, uh, generally all white Christian schools. And uh, by uh, the time he came to run for re-election, uh, the Christian right in the United States wanted him out, and they were quite happy to accept a divorced former film star in his place as, a, 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 as somebody who was closer to their interests and beliefs, they, they thought. Yeah, and Carter kind of gets lost a bit, doesn't he, as a one-term president between, you know, the scandal of the Nixon years and this almost mythicised Ronald Reagan that succeeded him. So, Ewan, what was people's perception of Jimmy Carter at the time and, and how do you think that's changed, if at all, in the years that have followed? Well, of course, perceptions were not uh, immutable. Uh, um, he wins the election in 1976, uh, 
probably treading on Dan's territory here, but uh, he wins the election of 1976 in part in the post-Watergate uh, uh, environment of American politics. And he's got a banner promise that he will never lie to the American people. And uh, two presidents ago, serial liar to the American people in the person of Richard Nixon. So, so he's playing on that. Uh, uh, he's also an outsider. Uh, you know, people don't know him. This is one of the things that he's got to get across uh, uh, in the very long campaign he has for president. Who, who is he? You know, Americans didn't know, but it took him a while uh, to establish himself, uh, played on his outsider status. Uh, but, uh, you know, four years in the White House uh, didn't bring the country much closer to understanding who uh, Jimmy Carter was. And his chief of staff remarked on that in 1980, uh, that Carter was still a bit of a mystery to many Americans. What was he? Uh, yes, he was a Democrat, but he wasn't a liberal Democrat. He didn't appear to have a, a traditional ideology. He refused to badge himself as a liberal or a conservative. And um, he tried to present himself as a problem solver, you know, a reflection of his background as an engineer. Competence and compassion uh, were two words Carter uh, liked to label himself uh, as being, as having. And um, uh, of course, uh, uh, competence went uh, out the window when he couldn't solve the massive inflation problem of the late 1970s. And Daniel, I wonder if, you, because you've written a whole book on Jimmy Carter's election, which is a great book, by the way, but do you think that it was just a right place, right time, because he come after Nixon and before Reagan, and it was just, it just fell right for him? Yeah, well, um, he was an interesting transitional figure. Uh, and I think it, as far as um, his election was concerned, his election in 1976 did accomplish several things that would have lasting uh, implications for, for the future of American politics. One of those was the increased attention that it brought to the South. And I think uh, it's important to note that much of late 20th and early 21st century American politics has focused disproportionately on the South. And that's a very new phenomenon from the time of the Civil War uh, up until 1976, there had been no uh, U.S. president elected from the Deep South. Uh, the closest really would have been Harry Truman elected from the, the border southern state of, of Missouri or uh, Woodrow Wilson with, with some southern roots, but really uh, at the time that he was running was from New Jersey. So the South had, had not been at the, the center of American presidential politics be, uh, before 1976, uh, and now it would. Um, it also, I think, rehabilitated the Democratic Party, uh, which immediately before Watergate looked like it was not doing well in terms of presidential elections. The 1972 election was a sweep uh, for Richard Nixon. And while obviously Watergate changed the political calculus, the question that the Democrats really had in 1976 was which sort of Democrat uh, would win. And Jimmy Carter was a different type of Democrat and one that I think presaged uh, the pragmatic uh, politics of, of Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, of course, are two very different people with different styles and, and even different appeals. But in some ways, uh, they were running with partially the same image, that is, uh, Southern governors who could theoretically transcend some of the cultural divides in the country and, and run on a record of getting things done. And uh, that's what, what Carter did. 
I do uh, agree very much with Ewan in his description of some of the challenges that Carter faced and the fact that even in 1980, uh, Americans felt like, some Americans felt like they didn't really know him very well. And in some ways, Carter's decline uh, in the public eye began even before the 1976 election, that he began that campaign right after securing the nomination, about 40 points ahead of President Gerald Ford. And that uh, popularity rating fell off during the course of uh, the summer and, and uh, early fall of 1976. He then won the election, um, but faced continued public approval rating declines uh, during his time in office. And much of that had to do with the way in which he tried to brand himself as someone who was very different uh, than conventional Democrats, someone who could bridge divisions, and that proved to be more difficult uh, than perhaps he had anticipated. And I think, you know, when we look back at Carter, certainly, I think he he doesn't get enough coverage. But I, I think one thing that we can all agree on is that he just seems like a, a nice guy, as we'll, we'll find out in his post-presidential years. And Ewan, I wonder if that was almost his downfall when he come up against Reagan. You know, what, what was it about Reagan that people were drawn to over a nice guy like Carter? Well, you know, it's very difficult uh, uh, to uh, put ourselves in the position of 1980. I'm old enough to remember it very well. And I was in the United States uh, uh, during that for the whole year. And Carter was presiding over the worst economic indicators since Herbert Hoover uh, ran and lost against uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932. You had 13% inflation. Think about that compared to what we're voting about today. You had 7% unemployment. So you had the very unusual um, economic phenomenon uh, of uh, uh, simultaneous runaway inflation and recession. And to cap it all, uh, you had a 20% prime borrowing rate. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he, he nice guy he may have been, but when he came to pocketbook issues, Ronald Reagan's optimism won out. But uh, no one uh, anticipated uh, what Reagan would uh, do so quickly to turn things around. Uh, in 1981, too, uh, uh, courtesy of um, uh, a monetary uh, uh, phase of policy by the uh, Federal Reserve to shake inflation out of the system at cost of the worst recession uh, since the 1930s. But that was to come. In 1980, Carter was perceived as a failed manager of the American economy. So let's then look to after his presidency, uh, where arguably he, he made a far greater impact, not just in America, but, but around the world. Ewan, I, I wonder if, you know, when we compare Carter to other presidents, was he just sort of following the steps that you would expect a president to take? you know, in terms of the charity work and leaving that sort of legacy? Or did he really go above and beyond and do something different? Well, I think he reinvented uh, the uh, post-presidency in a dramatic way. Uh, You know, failed presidents in the past, uh, you think of Richard Nixon, you think of Herbert Hoover, uh, spent their post-presidency seeking redemption, you know, writing uh, books about uh, why they were right, uh, why the country had gone wrong after they had left office, uh, boosting their own 
uh, reputation, or if um, uh, all uh, presidents would, uh, some of them, not all of them, but people like Ronald Reagan would do this, uh, Gerald Ford did it, I think Dwight Eisenhower did it as well. You know, they had a very good time and they, you know, made a lot of money out of uh, memoirs, out of speaking engagements. Uh, and along comes Jimmy Carter and uh, he sees the public presidency as an opportunity to continue in his goal of doing public good. And from that time on, I think no post-presidency until we have Donald Trump, who's exceptional in so many ways, uh, had broken from that, you know. In Bill Clinton, to an extent, to a lesser extent, George Bush, uh, but certainly Barack Obama, have all tried to uh, carry on the kinds of works that uh, uh, Jimmy Carter has done, admittedly through establishment of foundations, rather than the kinds of hands-on things that he has done. Uh, so I think Carter is not only the uh, founder of the modern post-presidency, uh, but he's operated in such a way, going up uh, ladders and um, uh, putting roofs on uh, social housing, uh, going out to North Korea to free to uh, to try to negotiate, succeeding in negotiating uh, the freedom of a captured American. You know, he's a hands-on guy, and I don't think anybody's been quite so hands-on since. Yeah, and. This kind of brings us full circle, I think, in in looking again at his faith. And and, and Daniel, I wonder if where Carter was really seemed to be sort of stepping away from what was expected in a post-presidency um, and really focused on charity work, is that because he's really driven by his faith and his desire to do good? I think so. I mean, he's certainly driven by an ethic of service. And that fits into, I think, a, a sort of uh, centrist American Protestant Christian 20th century ideal of faith is living out the ethic of Jesus and and being very compatible with the promotion of democracy and and concern for the least of these to use a, a biblical phrase that's I think popular among some progressive Christians. So certainly his work on in Habitat for Humanity would be a, a great example of that. Uh, Habitat for Humanity grew out of an interracial uh, Christian farm when Neil. Uh, farm uh, that was based in America's Georgia, right next to Carter's hometown of Plains. Uh, and it was founded uh, in 1976 by uh, some progressive Christians. And so immediately after Carter's presidency, uh, he became involved in that. And that uh, was that was certainly not the only service project that he took on after his presidency, but it was one of the defining ones. And I think in some of his uh, books on faith that written after his time in office, he explained how his Christian faith shaped him in some ways, I think not being president anymore freed him uh, to become a bit more overtly liberal uh, throughout his time in politics, especially his time in Georgia politics. He felt like he had to eschew the, the liberal label and to a certain extent, even the liberal ideology. Um, I think after his presidency, perhaps he felt freer to take uh, some of the stances that he wanted to take in terms of his own religious practice. Um, he left the Southern Baptist Convention for a, a smaller uh, splinter group of more progressive Baptists uh, in the early 1990s. And I think as a result, probably felt more comfortable. Uh, certainly that was the impression that he gave, more comfortable to pursue 
um, an ethic of, of service. And, and as he said in, in uh, several of his books, that he really did believe because of his faith that right would ultimately triumph, uh, that, that there would be a better world and that he could, uh, by living out the ethic of, of Jesus, could in some way contribute to that. And, and you mentioned, you know, an ethic of service and, and this idea that, that, you know, leaving the presidency was, was quite freeing to him. Do you think he enjoyed being a politician or, or was it this, this duty he felt to give back that drove his, his ambition for the White House? I think he was intensely ambitious in his early life. And that was uh, partly because of the fact that he did, he did very well in school. Uh, and then he went into he went to the Annapolis Naval Academy, and he had a, a conversation uh, early in his naval career with Admiral Heinrich Over that he uh, used as a title for one of his early books, "Why Not the Best," when he was asked by the admiral whether he had done his best. Uh, he said, "Well, you know, no, sir." He had to admit uh, honestly that maybe he could have done a little bit better, and and the um, the admiral asked him why not, and so. For the next uh, two decades or more, he seemed to be driven by this uh, ambition to prove that he was doing the best. Uh, but I think after he was president, I think he had yet another one of his moments of crisis, moments of growth, where he asked, he had to confront the fact that he had achieved the highest office uh, in the nation, arguably the world. And the, then the question was, then what? And so instead of simply trying to climb the political ladder, to continue to be elected to higher offices, uh, he was now free to to do something meaningful, uh, which he did. Yeah, and I think you know everyone can probably agree that he he's achieved an awful lot in the years since his presidency. Uh, I think though, potentially unanimous that we can probably agree that he he wouldn't be considered the best president by by anyone, um, or maybe he will. I guess you and where. Where do you think Jimmy Carter stands in, if you, you know, in the in the rankings of presidents? Well, I think he scores high marks for his moral character, and uh, we shouldn't take that for granted in the, in the president, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I think uh, um, coming back to something you said earlier, Jimmy Carter liked being president. Well, yes, but he didn't like politics per se. You know. Uh, Washington politics at that time wasn't as polarized as it is today. So you could get things done by cutting deals, compromising, doing trade-offs. But Carter didn't like this. Uh, you know, he had a vision, you know, it comes out to this, why not best? Well, I'm going to examine this problem. And when I've devoted all the possible attention I can give it, I'm going to come up with a solution. And that solution is the best one. So for me to compromise in any way on that is not good. You know, I'm not playing politics. So it, in that sense, uh, uh, he, I, I, he may have been a good man, not so good as a politician. Although, you know, that uh, uh, on the other side of the ledger, amazing for him to have uh, won the election of 1976 coming from nowhere. But he had political qualities to run for office, 
but I don't think he had the qualities which necessarily which he ne needed in office. That would be my uh, dichotomous explanation for him. <laughs> which probably explains why he was only a one-term president and uh, just couldn't quite beat the sort of political might of uh, of, of Ronald Reagan. But uh, just to sort of finish off, really, uh, this sort of whistle-stop tour of, of Jimmy Carter's history, what do you think his lasting legacy will be? Well, it, there's one, I suppose, a significant legacy. It's a negative one. Uh, he is the last president of the New Deal tradition. You know, the, this... Uh, liberal regime, democratic regime that has used government activism to uh, solve the nation's problems. Uh, uh, he is the last one of that uh, uh, line which stretches all the way back to Franklin D. Roosevelt. And he is, of course, replaced by a president who says in his inauguration, uh, in, the, in our present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem government is the problem. So I think that that, I think he, second thing is that uh, coming out of his religious beliefs, he tried to be a man of peace. Camp David is, you know, a major achievement in uh, terms of a step forward in the uh, Middle Eastern peace, although it couldn't be built on by others. But having said that, of course, uh, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter, uh, in late 1979, Jimmy Carter uh, reverts to Cold War mode. So, you know, there's this two sides of a man of peace, but also cold warrior. You know, it's who is Jimmy Carter? Is he a liberal? Is he a conservative? Is he a cold warrior? Is he a man of peace? There's still that uncertainty about him. And I think his legacy is uh, uh, rests much more on his post-presidency. Yeah, I think, uh, it, you know, it's always difficult to say how people in future generations will look at a president. Uh, there are many presidents who who had a certain reputation for a long time, and, and maybe that's uh, been re-examined. Andrew Jackson would be a case in point. There have been presidents uh, who were perhaps overlooked in the past or, or scorned, uh, like Ulysses S. Grant, who perhaps have been rehabilitated a bit in among some people in recent years. Uh, but I think from the standpoint of today, I think Jimmy Carter, uh, in my view, represents some possibilities that were not realized. So uh, he represented the possibility of bringing together a Southern and a Northern Democratic coalition that could be truly interracial. Uh, and that was realized in the election of 1976, and then it's never again happened. And I think the the failure of the Carter presidency to to live up to at least his economic promises caused uh, the rupture of of a coalition that by the late 1970s had become rather uneasy anyway. The uh, the Southern whites, particularly the Southern evangelical whites, were moving in a very different political direction uh, from some of the other people in the in the Democratic coalition. Uh, but but Carter in some ways represents this this last moment of of potential unity of potential bipartisanship. Uh, he represents the the first moment uh, in modern times when when Americans reached out to someone very deliberately who was a, a Washington outsider uh, and hoped for the best. And in, in some ways that uh, in different forms has has continued to animate a lot of different presidential campaigns, even 
uh, Donald Trump, although obviously Donald Trump is a very different person uh, than Jimmy Carter. But there's there's been this uh, this myth uh, in American politics in for the last few decades that in someone with limited Washington experience, uh, someone who's a, a true outsider, uh, can shake things up in Washington, can get things done. Uh, and that was Carter's promise. I think it was largely an unrealized promise. And I think uh, it's it's unfortunate um, that Carter did not um, experience greater success in working actually with members of his own party uh, in Congress. When he came into to office, uh, both houses of Congress were controlled by the Democrats. Um, but Carter was a different sort of Democrat, and it was it was difficult for him to work um, effectively with congressional leaders. Nevertheless, I think his his commitment to uh, fiscal responsibility, his commitment to uh, moral principles in foreign policy, uh, and his his commitment to trying to do what he believed was would be best for every group of Americans, rather than to be beholden to what he might have viewed as, as special interests or even partisanship. Uh, is something that I think is is admirable, and you know something that I think will will have to be reckoned in his favor as we evaluate his legacy. This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to both Ewan Morgan and Daniel Williams for joining me on this episode. And if you enjoyed the discussion and want to know more, check out some of the links in the show notes. Additionally, if you can leave us a nice review or rating, that will make us feel very good about ourselves and the work we do on the podcast. Next time, I'm joined by Dr. Andy Borden as we dive a bit deeper into both slavery and Native American history as we explore the history of Cherokee freed people and the complicated relationship that they had with both Cherokee Nation and the federal government.